gotta be fucking kidding. Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area, as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, it's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures on social media. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as a cinematic movie possible. Join us today as a horror film fanatic and collector, a novelist, and the guitarist of death metal juggernaut's Broken Hope. Please welcome The Void, Jeremy Wagner. Jeremy, how you doing? Doing great, Jim. How are you, bro? Doing great. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I'm glad we finally made it happen. Yeah, me too, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. No problem. So I guess I'm just going to start, I guess, at the beginning. What came first for you, your love of film, writing, or music? Or was it a thing that happened all at the same time? Definitely uh, film and music came, I'm sorry, film and film and books came before music. When I say before music, my, me being a, 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 a musician, I, I love music uh, since I, you know, could crawl, but I never fancied being a musician until, you know, I was like in my teens and stuff. So I grew up in a farmhouse in central Wisconsin, which uh, was near a town called Stevens Point, was about maybe 45 minutes north, actually, of Plainfield, Illinois, where Ed Gein was from. So I grew up like hearing tales of Ed Gein and all this creepy shit living out in the country since I was a little kid and take that in the fact that my mom was an avid reader of horror novels and mystery books and stuff. I grew up basically as a horror, you know, like I look at my mom's paperback novel book covers and stuff and be like, wow, this stuff is like completely fascinating, you know, like, um, uh, I liked all that scary stuff. And so I actually started reading books at a really young age. I'm talking going from kids' books to like my first adult novel that I tackled. I was like five or six years old. And it was the paperback edition of Jaws. Books came into my life early. Um, and then I, so did writing. I started writing my own stories and stuff. And then since we're talking about movies and this is cinematic void, you remember <clears throat> 77 really corny Japanese dinosaur movie, the last dinosaur. I do remember the last dinosaur. 
I haven't seen it in ages, but I do remember it. So I, w- I was so in the dinosaurs off of my memory because you got to realize this is 1970. We don't, I'm in the country. I don't have cable TV. We get maybe four TV stations. And then outside of that, you know, I'm spinning my parents' vinyl, reading books, and just acting like a kid with a wild imagination. That's all I had. When I saw The Last Dinosaur, it was imprinted on my brain, and I wrote my own, like, TV adaptation, you know, novelization of The Last Dinosaur. And I still have that to this day, like that story I wrote, you know, it was like in a in a diary. Um, so that was actually my first attempt at writing a short story or a novel. I circle back to your question, which was what came first. It was definitely writing in books. Movies were tied into to all that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because movies and film on on the like the, the TV stations I mentioned, we'd get like four stations on. So late at night, say the local CBS station or you know, NBC or whatever we could get would have like a horror movie a scary movie at night so i was really into that or any or any you know really any movie like that would be considered like first time on tv boom it's this movie or that there was all all of that stuff and then for me a really special treat would be going to the movies you know my parents would take me to see movies I wanted off the top of my head in grade school, like I begged them to take me to see uh, Star Wars, every Star Wars movie, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, that that King Kong movie with Jeff Bridges when it came out, you know, I'm just, I'm just thinking of movies off the top of my head. And then again, whatever I could get on TV. So film, books kind of went hand in hand and, and really stimulated my imagination. Then later, and then, by the way, I always loved music. When I said I played my parents' vinyl as a kid, I was really into their albums. So they listened to the Beatles and Crosby, Stills and Nash, Neil Young, some some rock and stuff. And I'd spin their records over and over again, scratch the living shit out of their vinyl because I'm like five or six. I don't know what I'm doing. I just know, hey, that sounds cool. And then when my teen years hit, then boom, it's like, oh, wow. Heavy metal is really cool. And then by then I was actually living in an actual town and had EL cable and I could watch Headbangers Ball and all and all these videos on MTV. And then one day I'm just like, uh, I always tell people it was when I heard Metallica Ride the Lightning that came out in 84. So I would have been around 14. I never heard anything like that. Before that, it was like Judas Priest and crocus and a bunch of bands but nothing like metallica and then that put me on a trajectory one to be a metal guitar player then to be a lyricist in a metal band as well which i've always done in broken hope i've always been the lyricist and written a lot of music um but the early part of my journey i already had that in my head like i'm gonna do music and write the lyrics and then it was like Metallica. Then I went into got into Slayer. And then it was like heavier thrash and then death metal and blah, blah. I was always seeking heavier and heavier music. Flip that back. Everything again goes hand in hand with Broken Hope. 
I would be inspired by movies, you know, and books and write lyrics inspired by that stuff. So all this stuff kind of in a way just all wove together, you know, and my, my three favorite, uh, I, I don't know what you call them. My three the, my three favorite arts are art worlds, if you will, are film books and music. That's, that's what really makes my life worth living. Awesome. I was going to ask you now, as you're getting a little older and you're getting into like, you know, obviously you're discovering and searching heavier and faster and like more brutal stuff musically. Were you doing the same for like film? Were you like, were you, do you remember the first kind of like horror cult film that really kind of clicked with you and kind of changed your trajectory of like, I need to get more into this stuff? I was in the basic monster movies. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about like old school stuff you know um dracula you know the wolfman all that stuff and then like i saw psycho by by the way at the time i never knew as a kid psycho was robert block and based on ed gein i learned that years later i already knew ed gein was and i knew psycho i never put the two together at the time but when i saw psycho that movie just uh that blew me away as a kid scared the shit out of me man especially at the end when janet or not janet we i forgot the actress's name but she turns mrs bates around in the chair and you see the face and everything that scared the hell out of me and then it seemed like uh, i was always searching for something more horrific whatever the movie after that that terrified me more than any other movie was halloween when i saw halloween i was still in grade school and it was the combination of the way that film was done the way you know michael myers this character who seems indestructible he's appearing in this you know suburban town in, in daylight he's not a guy hiding in the shadows um, in the goddamn score by John Carpenter, the, the, the music almost terrified me more than the, the film. I just remember to this day how scared I was. I was so scared after seeing that movie, like I would sleep with a butcher knife, under my mom's butcher knife under my pillow. My mom was a single mom. She'd go out on a date. I'd be crying and begging her not to leave because I thought, you know, <laughs> The psychopath could be outside. But the thing is, like, I got off on that, too, in a sick way. I was like, because I'm a horror kid, right? I loved horror so much. Also important to mention right around that time, to your point, Jim, like, looking for the next scary, horrific thing to watch. The thing that helped me discover new movies to, that I wanted to see in the horror realm was Fangoria magazine. So when Fangoria came out, I think it was right around 79 or something. And I got the first issue when it was on the newsstand. And what I had to deal with my mom, which was, I hated going to the dentist. That was like, talk about being scared in nightmares. I thought the dentist was the worst thing that could happen to you as a kid, right? I'd throw a fit. I didn't want to go to the dentist. And my mom would make a deal with me. Hey, please don't make my life any harder than it needs to be, Jeremy. If you just be cool, go through the dentist, 
do not throw a fit. When you're done, I'll take you to the store, get you whatever you want. So this one time we went to the dentist. My mom went to the store. I behaved myself. And on the and the only thing I wanted was this new magazine I just saw on the newsstand. It's called Fangoria. Godzilla was the cover. It was issue number one. And man, that blew me away. That's the first time I saw Tom Savini in an interview or saw what he was doing. Like, and then I kept getting every issue. And actually, Jim, when I was a kid, outside of wanting to be a, a dreaming of being a book writer and all and or a paleontologist, because I was so into dinosaurs. As time went on, I was like, I want to do practical effects in horror movies. I was so into that and into doing makeup and all that stuff. So anyway, because of Fangoria, then I discovered some of my favorite movies to this day, like the John Carpenter's The Thing. B-movies, too, that I fucking love, dude. Return of the Aliens, Deadly Spawn, Extro. Movies that were in Fangoria. And then I could find at my local video store or I asked them, hey, could, would you order this movie? I'll rent it, you know? So, so much like music, you know, wanting more, more and more extreme stuff. Horror, I was always looking for the next thing that would blow my hair back. Now, in terms of extremities, like I rented, um, Jim, I don't know, you look like a young guy. I'm, I'm 50, so I don't know how old you are but back in my day <laughs> old man wagner here at the video store they had a, a video series called faces of death yeah i remember those and i my friends and i would rent them for the shock value like oh my god we're gonna see real people die and and uh some of that shit was brutal but that so that's kind of where i drew the line i'm like okay i like the fantasy aspect of a good horror movie i don't need to see like snuff films i wanted to see horror that was done well or, or that met my taste when i say horror that's done well or meets my taste you could act, ask the person next to me like my wife or something they'd be like dude you have no taste <laughs> you know but anyway that's kind of how i got into all that and then and this is a cinematic void thing that i love you you also seem to have a taste for kind of like b-style action flicks you know mm -hmm. like i i worship charles bronson clint eastwood chuck norris and i you know I'd, i like i love watching all these movies like that or just about revenge and and big guns and and you know just i, I love that shit too you know so that that all that stuff happened for me around the same time especially when i discovered renting videos um i mentioned before my mom was a single mom raising my sister and me i have a younger sister and when we lived out in the country you know we didn't have much and then when my mom moved us to the town and we got cable tv she was able to miraculously afford a color tv and a VCR, and that changed my whole life that and cable and then what, so when I started renting movies, you know, I just went to town renting every thing that, that, that I could, if I'm mistaken, forgive me. I swear I saw it on your, your IG page. Did, did you by any chance in the last month post something about galaxy of terror? I did. I, I posted for alien day cause I was being cheeky and instead of posting about alien, 
I post about all the alien knockoffs. Right. All right. Cool. All right. So my memory was okay. So the reason I mentioned that movie is because I remember the day I got my video card and I could rent movies thanks to my mom. And I remember that box cover, man, for Galaxy of Terror. I remember Extro, Nightmare on Elm Street was coming out. My mom, I'll never forget, my mom came home from work. She's like, you love horror movies so much. I'm going to tell you, this woman at work said she just saw the scariest movie of all time. I go, you know, I'm like, what, The Exorcist or uh, uh, Halloween? She goes, no, it's called A Nightmare in Elm Street. I'm like, yeah, I think I heard of it maybe in Fangoria or something. And I never saw it. And then I rented it. So, yeah, man, the video wasteland changed my life for sure. I was going to ask now, um, and I know in, in stream metal circles, there was a lot of tape trading. And funny enough, in horror movie collecting circles, there was also tape trading of, like, you know, bootlegs. Because for years, a lot of uncut movies weren't available in the U.S. It was only probably the later 90s when Anchor Bay started releasing things like Dario Argento and stuff like that uncut. Did you um, ever do any tape trading, be it for music or movies? I did. uh for tape trading with with Broken Hope, especially demos. So um, in the late 80s, early 90s, tape trading uh, was really huge. You know, you do a demo tape, you'd send it out to fanzines, hoping to get a review, maybe even an interview. And uh, Ross Stolen from Immolation, really good friend of mine to this day, Immolation were like, kings of the under death metal underground when their their demo was out and they were in all these fanzines literally around the world and i thought that was so cool and people would trade them their demos for stuff and um that was a whole new thing to me and russ kind of took me under his wing and said here send that broken hope demo um we were just getting ready to record it i was telling him about it. he's like when it's done send it to this list of fanzines and i uh sent the demo worldwide the next thing you know we're getting people asking for a demo from around the world we're getting fanzines reviewing it doing interviews with us um i still have boxes of demos i never got rid of them that i got from you know all over the world same with fan mail and um all this stuff so it was a really special and unique way to get your name out as a band, as a death metal band back then. Again, no internet, you know, there's no ma- major magazines touching your band. And that was the way to do it. And then to that end, the other thing, Jim, that was cool is I did network with all these horror fans because Broken Hope really always has been a horror based band. The lyrics I write are all horror based. You could even say, that they're micro horror stories, you know, the lyrics. And and that got across to like-minded death metal fans who are also into horror. So I would get, I, w- I didn't necessarily trade movies. I would get VHS tapes given to me by the wonderful generosity of these like-minded horror fans, especially when Broken Hope put out albums and we're touring. We'd meet fans, come up to the tour bus, Hey, I mean, you know, blah, blah, blah. I got some gifts for you. I'd always get these uh, crazy horror horror movies and stuff on VHS tape. To your point, some stuff that's foreign, 
you know, experience stuff I'd never seen before. And just that opened my eyes and put, I put the stuff on, on the tour bus and, you know, we like, holy shit, what's this? You know, I never saw it before. So that was really cool. That was really awesome. And I wanted to make one note before I forget two years ago, I was in Rome and I went to Dario Argento's store and I just missed him. They, they said he pops in on this day or this day during the week, every week. And I just missed him. But, um, I bought a shitload of stuff and took some video in there. And I just thought that was so cool. You know, that's great. I always wanted to go to that store. Yeah. One of the people I worked with actually went to Italy and I think 2019, they brought me back a coffee mug from that store. I think uh, one of Argento's like protégés, Luigi Cosi, who directed um, Contamination and a bunch of other things. I think he's co-owner and like runs the store too. Okay. Yep. Yeah. There was a co-owner. That's right. They told me um, Dario has uh, some partner or something there, um, but I, I didn't. I didn't get to meet him. <clears throat> I got Dario's um, autobiography, mm-hmm. which. I wish I could have had him sign, but that's okay. He's got a, um, you may know this already from, from people that have been there, but he's got like a subterranean lair under the store. That's a museum with like some of the props from his movies and some other memorabilia and stuff. So that, that was pretty cool to see as well. Yeah. I, I, I've seen photos of it that people have taken from that downstairs and it's like, man, one of these damn days. Yeah, man. After this travel shit clears up and everything, one, I, I urge you to get over there because one, Rome is an amazing city, you know, just because of that history it is so freaking amazing. The, the architecture, the artwork, the food, uh, everything. And then there are Argento's store and, uh, you know, people who haven't been there, Sometimes they think, oh my God, it must be expensive, but no, you can, you can fly there and stay relatively reasonably. And, uh, I'm telling you, man, do it. You won't regret it. All right. That's, that's on my bucket list post COVID-19 with a whole lot of other things, but that that's been on my list for a while. I was going to say, we, we've talked a little bit about broken hope, but we, I haven't, or we haven't really discussed how did broken hope actually come about? So when I was in high school, you know, when I, I, I mentioned how I started playing guitar and by the time I turned 16, I started taking guitar lessons seriously. And I had a, I had this wonderful teacher who was in a heavy metal band uh, called Numbskull and they Numbskull had one album out called ritually abused and the lead guitar player tom who wrote all the all the riffs and everything uh was my guitar teacher he was also classically trained he he had a degree in music so i had this wonderful combination of a teacher who could teach me heavy metal riffs heavy metal techniques on guitar from picking to power chords to certain styles like i was never really big on playing cover tunes but i i like certain licks so he would teach me you know certain riffs from metallica songs uh he'd teach me like you know the bridge to angel of death by slayer dark angel 
uh, stuff like that. And on the flip side, he was also teach me music theory type of things, how to read music, circle of fifths, music theory. I just, it was, it was really great for me. So that said, I was like in my head, I want to form a band and play the heaviest music possible. And I, I eventually was starting to write my own riffs, you know, I was writing songs. I was also writing lyrics. Um, back, back when I was a teenager, they were pretty funny lyrics though. Like when I think about them, cause they're about <clears throat> killing posers, <laughs> you know, uh, kill all the got hair metal guys. Um, just shit like that. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, you know, they eventually got into horror and I found what I, you know, my purpose as a lyricist was, was horror. Of course, I was that no brainer. Right. So when I was in high school, I went to high school in a town called Gurney, Illinois. Um, so though I grew up in Wisconsin, by the time I was able to turn 16, I was living back in Illinois, living with my dad going to school and I'm trying to form a band and I'm meeting musicians. Now, when I was in high school, most of the musicians that had bands and stuff were all they were doing was playing cover tunes and they were playing shit that I had no interest in, in doing. They didn't write original music. They wanted to do docking, whatever, white snake, all, all hair metal stuff. Um, and now that I'm older, I, I just want to make a disclaimer. I do like some hair metal music, but when I was 1980s, it was like, no, that, that shit was like, not for me. And it definitely not being in a band. I, I can appreciate it now, but these guys, all they did was covers and they had no imagination. So luckily though, I found our singer, Joe Thiacek, our original broken hope singer. He rode the school bus with me and lived in my neighborhood. And he was in the, like, all the metal bands I was into and then more. He was in the crossover bands like uh, DRI. And then he loved punk. You know, he loved GBH, Dead Kennedys, all these hardcore bands. He was like, he kind of actually, when I mention it now, it makes me think of like Jeff Hanneman, a Slayer. Because Jeff Hanneman loved all these punk bands and love playing extreme music too. And Joe was kind of like that. And so Joe was teaching me, turning me on to punk and hardcore stuff and showing me how heavy those bands were um, outside of, you know, thrash and the death metal I was getting into like within a year later, like by 87, 88, he wrote, we, we knew we wanted to do something really heavy and really extreme. So we had, a couple fledgling bands like our first band was called decimation i remember that it was joe and just some local kids from school but it was always him and me then after decimation we were in a band called we named the band vile demise i remember and then crypt and then crypt became eventually broken hope and by the time broken hope formed in 1988 I was really into the death metal scene by then. And I was turning Joe onto more death metal than he was aware of. And I was doing, starting to get into all that tape trading we were talking about. And I was just seeking heavier and heavier music. So I went from like Dark Angel, who's not a death metal band, but Dark Angel into death 
which of course is death metal. And then from death, like by 89, when there was Carcass and Napalm Death, Morbid Angel, Terrorizer, Entombed, that was it, man. I was like, I knew I just was going down the right road. Broken Hope basically formed the year I was graduating high school. After high school, we had that demo, sent the demo out. We did one more demo within six months after that, just for record labels. And boom, we got signed. And then our first album came out. And by the way, since I'm here talking about it, this year is our 30th anniversary of our first album, Swamp and Gore, coming out 30 years ago this year. So that's pretty cool and pretty frigging crazy for me to think about. Is there going to be a reissue with the uh, original artwork, perhaps? Oh, man. Where have you been, my friend? <laughs> well, I thought I thought there was a reissue a few years ago, but with different artwork or something. Am I wrong? There was a... Yeah, there 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 isn't a reissue from a Greek record label called Floga Records. Okay. And they they wanted that original cover artwork. And it's funny you bring that up because when they... They approached me about licensing it. And it look, it'd be easy for you maybe to miss that that came out. That was a small, it's a small indie label. And they only did, you know, X amount of copies of right Swamped and Gore. So we want, we, I'd like to have that come out through Metal Blade, more, more vinyl versions and stuff. But anyway, um, back to Floga Records, I, I told them, hey, I've got all the archives. I can give you the artwork, um, blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, we want the original artwork that was on Grindcore International Records. That's the label that put out Swamp Thing Gore. And then Metal Blade Records picked up our contract and re-released it with a new cover. Right on. And I said, man, I hate that first album cover. <laughs> Terrible, man. When it came out, everyone hated it, the fans and the band. <laughs> it's great. It's great. It's unique. It's, yeah, well... What's funny is um, <laughs> uh, now, like, there's a whole new fan base, right? For there's these younger death metal fans that are so old school. They, it's like wanting what you can't have. They want that original album cover. So I told Fogger Records, okay, here's the original cover art. Go ahead and use it. And then the next thing you know, bro. Everyone bought, it sold out. The vinyl Sick. copy sold out. And last month, because of fan fan demand, we um, released a whole line of merchandise or JSR merchandising cool. of Swamp and Gore 30th anniversary uh, merchandise with that original cover art. We never even made that cover art as as shirts or anything back in the day. This is the first time. That's awesome. <laughs> and um, all that stuff almost sold out. So, um, yeah. So to your your point that that stuff's happening <laughs> cool. with your re relevant to the original cover art from the re release of the album to to the merchandise and everything. And <clears throat> I think it's great. People are 
gaga over that, man. I still hate the artwork, but <laughs> <laughs> it's cool, you know? It's cool. I was going to say, because you're basically coming out at the, the peak at the beginning of the big death metal boom. Yep. And um, what was that like? Because like you had like the grindcore bands and the death metal bands, and they were all kind of you know, forging together at the same time. And they had grindcore bands becoming death metal bands and stuff like that. I mean, it is a very unique time period for extreme music. What was it just like being part of that and, and involved in that? Um, it was pretty cool because I was into all of it. You know, I was in the obituary who, you know, they're, <clears throat> they're by no means a grind grinding type of band, but they're so, so heavy that, um, I just, I just worship those guys. And then Napalm Death, who, um, you know, they're complete grindcore, super fast, um, extreme band that had a huge influence on me. So <clears throat> being with, um, being in that scene with all those bands was just a great experience. And we've had opportunities where we've played with all those bands in one way, shape or form, either on tour or on festivals and um it it was just a really magical time you know um because that was like the heyday of, of death metal you know it was just uh it it was just really awesome and the fact that bands like <clears throat> obituary suffocation napalm death carcass are still doing stuff i think is really fantastic for me personally i mean i jim if you ask me like oh you know who do you listen to nowadays you know i really my favorites are go back to those those years ago you know those bands that really were at the forefront of the death metal scene that really influenced me you know like when i think of morbid angel alters of madness that album really <clears throat> blew me away before that death leprosy spiritual healing um carcass symphonies of sickness one of my all-time favorite albums of all of, out of all those death metal or grind genres is terrorizer world downfall for me that album it never ages i i just love it you know and and all that stuff at coming out at, at you know it, you think about the time that that stuff's coming out if you went from 88 89 90 that's that shit just blew me away and it was a tsunami wave of that stuff and it really it really affected me as a death metal guitar player you know and and, and my band because if you listen to broken hope we kind of draw upon some of that stuff. Like when we write riffs, we'll reference bands. It's kind of funny. Like our drummer will say, Hey, Jeremy, that riff you're writing, we'll call, we'll call that the obituary riff. Cause it's really heavy and slow. And then go into like a, something that's just extremely blasting. Right. And there, that's like this direct terrorizer influence. So we've always woven these, different elements of death metal and grind into the band and um and you know hey we owe it all to you know the, those pioneers and again to be a band that was in that first wave uh i'll albeit on a small level you know we were never cannibal corpse or anything but um it's still a great i don't know it's a great 
legacy, I guess, for, for Broken Hope to be around after all these years and to, to your question, to be around that magical time period. Nothing but fond memories, man. It's just, it was awesome, you know, still great. Death Metal is still alive, maybe even bigger than ever right now, 2021. It's pretty, pretty cool to see, you know? And I'm amazed how many people I've met over the course of my life who know who my band is because I'm still a fan, right? So like <clears throat> I've had bigger bands that worship I'm like, hey, yo, oh hey, you're you're in broken hope. I'm like, man, I you know, would never think you'd know who my band was. Like I had that mentality, you know. <clears throat> Celebrities too and shit. It's fucking crazy sometimes. And um really grounded kind of guy. So cause I always I, I I'm also a sentimental guy. So I think about those days Jim, when I when you talk about me forming Broken Hope in high school, <clears throat> I think about the metal magazines I'd be reading in study hall, right, just to kill time, or the pictures I'd have on my wall. And then, you know, over the last 30 years, to meet some of those guys in those bands from those magazines or who I, whose albums I had and whatnot to acknowledge my band in some way or whatever really is really fucking cool, you know? So, um, I don't know, man. It's just, uh, life, life is full of surprises that way, I guess, you know, I don't take it for granted. Now, I, I know there's a broken hope documentary that's been out there. I remember one bit that like you were really excited about is when Kirk Hammett came out and saw you guys play. Yeah. Kirk, that was in 2012. And he came and and saw our show in uh, San Francisco. Yeah, that was that was fucking cool. And on the documentary, you can see I got the cell phone video of me with him backstage. And and Jim, that that's that's one of the guys I'm talking about. Like in high school and study hall, reading metal magazines and seeing, you know, Kirk Hammett, Metallica, who I worshipped. Again, Ride the Lightning is the reason I wanted to be a guitar player right so um so yeah <clears throat> for him to see my band and like you see in the doc tell me my guitar tone is so fucking heavy and blah 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 you know that like they the teenager inside me is like pinching himself going holy shit can't believe this is happening and then um kirk and i we we since then we we hit it off we we're Kindred spirits in a way, especially with horror, being horror kids, um, whether it's horror movies, horror movie posters, horror memorabilia, um, pre-code comics, that kind of thing, and, and guitars and stuff. I've, I've hung out with him a few times since, and he's uh, definitely one of my favorite people, you know. Yeah, someone who's like-minded with that stuff and surreal. It'd be like <clears throat> if Kirk like when Kirk Hammett hangs out with, um, you know, Jimmy Page or something, right? From Led Zeppelin. Maybe it's surreal to Kirk because he probably spun Led Zeppelin albums and shit when he was a kid in high school. So for me to, hang, you know, I've hung out with him and it at times feels surreal. But, you know, at the end of the day, he's a man. We're both men. We're, you know, no one's uh, fucking a god or anything. But, He's in the back of my mind. I guess he's still a you know a god to be in some influential way, but um, 
he's just really cool, man. And that, yeah, that's one of those moments, like in that documentary where it's like, wow, fucking, I don't know, man. I just couldn't believe it. I, <clears throat> I had to tell my mom when that happened because she, I didn't have any money as a kid. So she's the one who bought me all my Metallica tapes, <laughs> you know? So anyway, yeah, it's pretty cool. Now, since you, we were talking about Kirk and like Kirk famously had a, a kind of a gallery exhibit that he was touring with all of his posters and stuff. And one thing I've seen on your Instagram feed is that you collect a lot of stuff too. Um, how did, how did you get into collecting like film, film memorabilia and stuff like that? I got this life-size super realistic alien and it's so cool. Even the dome, you know, like an alien, the first movie that the head was like clear kind of like see-through and it had a, a, a like a skull in the front and stuff mm-hmm. dead on dead on and when i got that i was like shit man i i'd like to i, I want to get more of this stuff you know and i just started going to auctions and stuff i i start with that alien that like that was my first big piece of memorabilia and then and then after that it was like posters so i started getting in the original one sheets of all kinds of all kinds of movies that i'm into from horror to you name it death wish three uh scarface everything you know so and i get stuff that was like signed by the cast rare posters and then i started that i'd start buying more more horror memorabilia so i'd be buying like life-size busts and now some of this stuff was like not screen used or anything but as time went on <clears throat> i got more and more in the screen used stuff so or production elements that were used in movies for example i have i have a jaws room jaws in the thing john carpenter's a thing are two of my favorite horror movies of all time so i've got like a screen used barrel i've got a spear tip you know, like Quint screwed on the spear gun. Not a lot of stuff from Jaws really exists, actually, because a lot of movies actually from 70s and 80s that I love, people threw so much shit away mm-hmm. after the production. I could, I, it's like heartbreaking when you hear, like, oh, yeah, that got tossed out or whatever. But over time, I've been able to acquire more and more stuff. I've got, <clears throat> when I say production elements too, like I've got, um original jaws clapper board you know it's got like serrated teeth on it i've got i've got the fucking blueprint dude for bruce the the mechanical shark i've got i've got the actual blueprint and i'm having that restored right now because it's in really bad shape but i i'll i'll have it salvaged and framed and everything it's going to be really great and then i've got the the uh like the final approved like spielberg and universal studios approved script for jaws you know stuff like that and then and then some crazy jaws posters like i got a i've got foreign posters you know like there's one from from turkey which is really funny because it's like if you remember jaws 2 that shark coming out of the water and there's a chick um water skiing you know Mm -hmm. in in the original poster art this Turkish version of Jaws, they they don't use the shark from the Jaws artwork. They use the shark from Jaws 2, 
but with a chip, not a girl on water skis. They cut that out. They got its mouth is open. It's coming out of the water. And like this chick is some chick is like flying down his fucking mouth. <laughs> but that's but that's for Jaws, the the first movie. So crazy, you know, posters like that, they're pretty fun. And then and then you get into these crazy like subway size poster, you know, like uh shit like that. So anyway, same thing with the thing. The thing, you know, um there's really nothing from Rob Botine that's around. A lot of that stuff just disintegrates. Um, and obviously the set that they shot up in British Columbia was burnt to the ground and all that. However, I had um, a collector. I had my own thing collection going on. I have a whole thing museum. I'm talking. <clears throat> I have more thing stuff than Jaws for sure. I've got every... I think I've got every poster ever made. I've got every version of the film in every format from around the world. That's one thing. Then you got, you know, life-size props. I have like crew crew uh, jackets from from the the crew that worked on the film. One sheets, or not one sheets, um, storyboard. Sorry, and then from you know promotional stuff from around the world. But um, I bought a collection from the guy who runs outpost 31 the biggest thing fan site he um great guy todd he, he moved he was in the process of moving wanted to liquidate everything he had he was a hardcore collector hardcore and he had like the fucking rotor from the norwegian helicopter that explodes in the movie he had debris from the camp that he went you know he went up there decades ago just during summer sniffed around and threw all the shit into an SUV, took it back to the, the States. So anyway, I got all that stuff. I don't know if I have the biggest thing collection, but I, I gotta have one of the biggest in, in the world. Also, since we're on the subject of the thing and, and to your, to your viewers and you guys hosting the show, I don't want to sound like fucking bragging McGee here. I'm just sharing cool shit that I collect, but, the, the thing 2011 the prequel mm-hmm. i bought most of the life-size props like if you watch the thing prequel the i've got the um the life-size corpse the autopsy the autopsy thing you know i've got that <clears throat> i've got the thing pilot that was cut out of the film that they did cgi over mm-hmm. if, if you hardcore fans know that movie you know what i'm talking about from there i mean i got there's just a there's shitloads of memorabilia you got i i have same with music memorabilia yeah that's a whole nother freaking universe too like it's 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 fucking it's it i can't jim i i can tell you i must have said i'm not gonna collect anymore at least a thousand times and some shit fucking pops up and i go god damn it i i gotta get that because there's always there's always a movie, man, that I want something from. Like the Godfather, like Godfather memorabilia. I want that because I worship that movie so much. <clears throat> Scarface as well. Scarface, um, they have one of Tony Montana's screen used like suits just last week in an auction. I didn't buy it. 
what shit that's too much money you're like fuck that i'm not i'm not going there but you know it's uh it's uh it's i don't know man it's fucking nuts my i've said this before and i'm not kidding if i ever have the means i would love to just open (laughs) jeremy wagner's emporium of cool shit and just put fucking everything on display from the horror memorabilia to the music memorabilia, the the Jeff Hanneman Museum itself is is a fucking beautiful thing. I'm really proud of what I've done with that. But again, this is shit that is on private property. It's not like you know I can share it. And the thing is, man, I really would love to share this in some way in a public place. Somehow. Maybe someday, even if it's who knows. Maybe I'll like Kirk Hammett. You know, Kirk his 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 poster thing that he did you know was really cool you know maybe i'd do something like that that would actually be really awesome and i was going to ask you because i have seen you post these you do own a collection of jeff hanneman's guitars and we're talking about jeff hanneman from slayer um how did you get those guitars well back when when jeff died jeff coincidentally as i'm talking to you today's may may 3rd so he died eight years ago on may 1st when he passed away i saw a thing pop up in the news that jeff's widow Catherine hanneman was gonna auction his guitars and Catherine hanneman was gonna facilitate or have esp guitars facilitate the auction fortunately for me right place right time i'm friends with the president of esp guitars and I contacted him and said, hey, man, would you be willing to talk to Catherine Hanneman and see if she'd just sell me whatever she's willing to part with outright rather than have it go to auction and have these guitars scattered to the four winds or whatever. So he did that. Catherine was interested in talking to me and we connected. And then from there, um, I flew out to the Hanneman house and uh, acquired guitars and a bunch of other, just tons of Jeff's stuff. Since then, Catherine Hanneman is someone I really regard as a dear friend. I really, really value her friendship and she's a really wonderful person and she's been really good to me. And she, she had made me promise that I would play Jeff's guitars because Jeff, according to her, would hate to have his guitars just displayed in a museum or some shit, never played. Um, And I kept that promise. I I actually used two guitars to write and record the last Broken Hope album, Mutilated and Assimilated, which, by the way, is a tribute to the thing. So I kept my promise with all the other stuff I got that belonged to Jeff. I made like a legit, call it what you want, dude. Call it the church of Hanneman, the Hanneman room. It's a, it's, it's all about embracing and celebrating Jeff Hanneman's legacy. When you see this museum, you know, call what, again, call whatever you want. When you see this thing, it's really a fantastic place of honor for Jeff Hanneman to be clear. And I think you, you get it, but to, just to say it, you know, I, I don't buy stuff because I'm a 
collector. I buy things I'm really passionate about, mm-hmm. whether it's the Jaws stuff, the Thing stuff, any anything I, I, I collect, it's because I have a real personal connection to it. So if you rewind when we were talking about my influences and starting out on guitar, when when Slayer came out with Rain and Blood, honestly, before that, I, I had Slayer albums, but like my head was always like, you know, Metallica were like gods to me or whatever. And then when Rain and Blood came out, that changed everything for me. And I'll tell you this, being a lyricist and also such a fan of metal back in back then like i i would buy albums and read all the lyrics as the songs were playing i'd read all the liner notes and their thanks lists and all that shit right i'd read the photo credits who took the pictures of the man i was such a fanatic about consuming every detail of an album so rain and blood comes out i'm i'm fucking blown away and i'm worshiping this album like nobody's business that that was it for me and then i'm seeing well who's writing these sick riffs it's mostly this it's mostly jeff hanneman and then jeff hanneman's also writing most of the fucking lyrics to the music and he doesn't sing right and i'm like white bulb went off in my head hey you like writing you're writing riffs already you could do all that because i'm no singer i can't even chew gum and play guitar at the same time so jeff really aside from that Ride the Lightning album, two years later when Rain and Blood came out, huge, profound moment in my life and changed my trajectory. That's the album that made me seek heavier and heavier and heavier music. That album can't be topped to this day. It's like Terrorizer, World Downfall, Slayer, Rain and Blood. These albums are timeless and they changed my life. So anyway, fast forward, I'm in the right place, the right time of my life. I can acquire these things, the Jeff Hanneman stuff. Dude, honest to God, man, I just, I did it for the right reasons. And I'm still flying that Jeff Hanneman flag high and and preserving his legacy the best way I can. And again, that's all stuff I'd love to share. I'm going to try to figure this out at some point. So we'll, we'll have you come out, bring some of your thing stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll bring out that thing 70 millimeter print we've screened a few times and we'll go from there. Yeah, well, I'm in the Chicagoland area. I'm just about... 25 minutes north of downtown Chicago, right on, on the North shore. Yeah. So if you're ever in Chicago, let me know ahead of time, man, because I'm going to get your ass over here. And then we, I'd love to do, if I can get a hold of that theater, man, and they give me the, the heads up and I can find out what they got. And uh, you could help me there. Fuck it, dude. Let's do a cinematic boy joint Wagner venture and <laughs> show some, some friggin' movies, you know? I'm 100% down for that, dude. Like, let's make this happen. This is the point of these podcasts, damn it, is to make cool shit happen. Right. I'm all for it, bro. Life is short, and that's all I want to do is make cool shit happen all the time. Awesome. I kind of want to jump back since we were talking about, like, you know, looking at Jeff Hanneman's, like, you know, on the liner notes that he was writing the lyrics and the music. When you write songs for Broken Hope, what comes first for you? Is it the lyrics or is it the riffs? Most times it... it it is the riff. The riff. The riffs come first. The riffs get made into a, a full-length song, and then the lyrics come after. That's not to say that I don't get some crazy idea right for for lyrics for a song that I got in my head and I make a note of. Be it a song title that the song title itself, if I revisit it, will tell me what the subject matter is about, or I'll make more detailed notes 
and I'll flesh it out lyrically. And then at some point use it, you know, apply it to some music and stuff. But most of the time riffs, the songs come first and then I start writing lyrics, you know, I also get great ideas from our singer, Damien. He's given me some great content. Like he'd be in the past. He, he's been like, Hey, texting me, check out this link to this screwed up story. And I'll read it and be like, holy shit, this is crazy. One of those was um, on our last song, we had a song called Russian Sleep Experiment. That was like Damien gave me that idea. But uh, again, music, most of the time, the music comes first and then I get to writing all the words, you know? Gotcha. Now, in 1999, Broken Hope originally called it a day, and then in the aftermath, you started another project called Earthburner, which I believe is named after a Broken Hope song, right? Yeah, that's correct. Earthburner, we actually did a three-song EP, and I'm trying to remember now if that's on Bandcamp or something. It's out there. It's available. And we did a music video, too. And Earthburner, Jim, that was like what I was going to do You know, when Broken Hope went on hiatus or quit back then we tech well technically 99 our fifth album grotesque blessings came out then we toured on that for a while and then we then we quit so right around i think 2002 is when we were like said oh broken hope is over we announced it that was it so i had all these songs written for another broken hope album that we were going to call the flesh mechanic and the flesh mechanic actually became a song later on our 2013 album moment of disease but going back when i was writing these broken hope related tunes and broken hope was ending um i'm like fuck it i'm gonna keep going i'll make a new band and Earthburner was the name and at the time it was gonna be like broken hope part two you know i was gonna use those songs that i wrote blah 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 then th- i didn't do anything with Earthburner until 2011 i think it was that's when I'm like, Broken Hope wasn't in the picture as far as coming back and or, or anything. <clears throat> I was going to bring Earthburner back, and that's all I was going to do. And when I did it, I was changing gears. I'm like, it's not going to be death metal so much as Terrorizer Worship. You know, that again, that World Downfall album is so fucking great to me. I'm like, I want to do something like that really extreme super heavy of course you know but different tuning too like broken hope tunes to d standard Earthburner was tuned down to b standard so it's gonna have a bit of a different sound tone wise but still heavy as fuck super super extreme grind you know again we did three three tunes for an ep did a music video was set to do that for the rest of my life and then within a year as my drummer Mike and Earthburner, who's with me now in Broken Hope, as we're jamming, we got approached by a management company, a record label, a manager who's like, could you please bring Broken Hope back? Our singer Joe, uh, he committed suicide the year before, 2010, I think. And um, I was like, oh, I'll never do Broken Hope now. With Joe and I talked about making Broken Hope a real thing, come back, do it right, blah, blah, blah. When he died, I'm like, ah, we'll never do it again. So <clears throat> doing Earthburner, then we get, I get approached by, again, this team. You know, it's a manager, booking agent, record label. Why don't you assemble Broken Hope? Can, you know, get any ex-band members together? Well, Joe was dead. Ryan Stanek, who is also 
unfortunately deceased now, um, hadn't played drums in, in forever. He wasn't going to be coming back. Our bass player, Sean, from the old days, he was coming back. He would come back. We'd have Mike on drums and then just need like a lead guitar player and a singer. And oh, and our, our lead guitar player, Brian Griffin from Broken Hope, the old days, he became a tour manager and a sound man. So he was doing that full time and he, he just didn't want to go back down memory lane with Broken Hope and whatnot. So that's cool. We were like, all right, we'll get another lead guitar player and a singer. That's all we need. So we contacted some singers, one of which was Damian Lesky of Gorgasm, who uh, ended up working out great. He's super guttural. He always says he'll never fill Joe's shoes. I, I totally get it, but he really, Damien's worked hard to sound like like Joe and have that broken hope sound. You know, the vocalist, the vo- a vocalist makes a band. I don't care, you know, if it's Alice in Chains or Journey, you know, you get a new front man, you want them to sound like your band, you know. Damien sounded like Joe and really fit fit. And then um we've had a couple lineup changes since 2012 when we came back. But um that's really the gist of how we got back together. It would kind of happen quick, like out of the blue. Uh I don't think it's actually let me take a step back actually when I think about it. You know, man, if it wasn't for that that manager, booking agent and the labels, I don't know if Broken Hope would be back right now. It's kind of funny to think about because that really motivated me to to do something, you know, and bring Broken Hope back. And then once I got motivated, I started thinking part of the motivation was thinking Joe's gone. I'm still alive. Broken Hope was my baby, still is my baby. And uh, at the end of the day, I'm the chief songwriter of the band musically and i write all the lyrics and i work pretty fucking hard for this band my whole good part of my life over half my life now so i had all those thoughts in my head i'm like fucking and there's fans around the world that want to see the band fucking what let's do it life life is short so that's how it happened this man i'm glad broken hope came back it's been um a great going on nine years now since we reformed so yeah it's been it's been great we we have uh new music we're writing now we're making one appearance this year in mexico for mexico metal fest and uh we're going to celebrate the 30th anniversary of swamp and gore there and then uh, we'll just see what happens next we kind of pick and choose our own battles you know we're not like touring seven months out of the year or anything we're playing select dates when they pop up whatever makes sense what's paramount is always releasing the highest quality broken hope album we can i'm talking in terms of highest quality production the best written songs the best of everything that's always paramount because an album is forever an album is eternal and we've always had that attitude so um anyway as long as i'm around and i feel inspired i'll keep doing broken hope stuff you know that's awesome and i you know i for one i i don't want to speak for nick but i'll speak for nick and nick can speak for himself too like 
we both we both love Broken Hope, so it's like really cool that like it's still going and thriving, and that's a approach that I wish. Not trying to call out any bands. I'm just saying in general that bands that have like been around for a while or that like had went on a hiatus and then got back together is like when it comes to new material, making it fucking rip, regardless of what the genre is, and that that is that is something that like you know I've seen more bands doing this now because before it was just like the you know kind of like nostalgia tour thing which you know you talked about glam metal that's a lot of those bands just go out play their hits and that's it there's something to say about bands that have been like going or got back together that are still putting out the material just as good as they were if not better than what they were so i guess my next question is like what what are the bigger biggest difference between doing broken hope in the you know now as opposed to when you were originally starting it i think doing it broken hope now um it's almost like things get better with age because and that works in two ways seems like the back when we started even in the 90s you know you had that big wave of death metal in the early 90s and it was super popular there was also this is my observation thinking back to that there was also an attitude a lot of people didn't understand death metal and people like i'm not talking about fans obviously fans got it but like the press and people in business record labels booking agents a lot of people didn't get death metal they didn't take it seriously back then people that didn't get it either thought it you know they they hated the vocals they called them cookie monster vocals they they didn't get the intensity or or whatever and i guess it's kind of like punk rock you know when punk came out i'm sure a lot of those same types of people didn't get punk rock and now what do you get you you can turn on a classic rock station and hear punk song right so now that i'm older and this time's gone by and generations and generations of metal fans have been born and discovering broken hope there's a there's a bigger appreciation from the fan base i've done shows where a guy in Atlanta, I'll never forget, he brought his kid to Broken Hope show when we opened for a Deicide uh, tour. And that was his kid's first concert, you know. And I thought, that's really amazing. I can't believe that kid seeing his first concert and it's my band. Because I know my first concert, I'll never forget it. And that kid will never forget that. And then, you know, I remember a woman brought her daughter to a concert fucking they just love broken hope and i'm just just sort of weird for me in a in a cool way but like no one brought kids to broken hope concerts back in the 90s i can tell you that (laughs) and then you know like um when i talked about the people that didn't get death metal those booking agents those journalists uh, people that dismissed it as like what's this shit now it's really respected i mean you hear death metal songs um, in in movies. You hear death metal, the genre, the term death metal being dropped in movies. You hear it um, or read about it in books. I have novels where someone references, "Oh, I'm listening to death metal" or something. It's pretty. It's pretty cool. And then you have whatever, just pop culture, man. You know, whether you like it or not, you see some celebrity 
wearing a cannibal corpse shirt. I know a lot of people don't think that's cool, but I'm like, fuck it. I like my whole thing was as a young man in Broken Hope was, you know, death metal for life. Fucking, I want the world to choke on death metal. God damn it. Death metal is the greatest fucking form of music ever. And uh, I still kind of have that mentality. <laughs> like, everyone, I want you to experience death metal. So, again, to your question, now and then, I really think death metal is more well received, more respected, if you want to say that. And it's on a it's on a larger larger platform. It's pretty cool, you know. Even video games, man. Death metal, you know. It's just it's it, it's it's uh, it's pretty cool. It sounds like I've been around a while, Jim, but <laughs> <laughs> I have, I guess, you know. So that's how I look at it. I mean, I I think like the bands that made it out and survived and are able to thrive now because I know the environment's different. There's no more tape trading because you have the internet. You can connect to someone like in a second, really. And you can have band camp and you have all that stuff. And I know like it's a little different because things are more accessible, but I think it's also open opportunities for more people to discover stuff. So people that wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to tape trade back in the day now has access through streaming services, band camp, all that stuff to a literal musical history of any genre they want to get into. If they want to get into jazz, all that shit's out there. If they want to get into death metal, all that shit's out there. And I think that is... I, I know a lot of people kind of like physical media and stuff like that, and I still get vinyl. Nick gets vinyl. I buy Blu-rays and stuff, and I think that's important. But I don't want to knock streaming because of the opportunities. Yep, right, exactly. And I'll give you this, man. Like Whether it's you, Nick, and, and, and young young people who go down rabbit holes like uh like nick and i were talking about those diehard super young people who are like i want merchandise with the first broken hope album cover that you know i think is shitty but it's so old school and whatever weird they want it and then they can they go down rabbit holes from there like they can go to youtube they can see fucking broken hope playing a concert in the 90s even though they weren't born till 20 years after that concert they can see broken hope with our original lineup playing somewhere you know and it's on youtube and you they keep going down rabbit holes they can listen to these demos on youtube like the broken hope demos are on there immolation mortician on and on and on this world we're in man everything's at your fingertips it's pretty cool for me i'll get i'll tell you this um i told you i, I collect music memorabilia totally non-metal related but this might surprise you i don't know one of my favorite bands favorite fucking bands of all time is 1970s era leonard skinner i love 70s era Skinner, and I have a fucking entire 70s era Skinner wing at my house. <laughs> I laugh, I laugh saying that because it sounds ridiculous, but man, it's fucking really, it's really cool. But not to get off on that tangent, you'll see it, Jim and Nick, if you ever visit me, I'll show you that too. But my point is, I was in grade school when Skinner, 70s era Skinner, were at their fucking peak with Ronnie Van Zant and all the, you know, Steve Gaines and, you know, the people that died in the plane crash 
fucking are in those. They're in my heart, but I never got to see them. You know, I was in grade school. My parents weren't going to take me to a <clears throat> Skinner show circa 1976. So what's wonderful about the internet is I can see Skinner in the seventies playing a concert. I think it's fucking cool. It's all I got. It's all I can, can get. Thankfully someone shot the footage and now it's, digitized and video when it's on YouTube, but like a kid who wasn't around to see carcass, deicide, bitchwary, broken hope in the heyday of, you know, the 1990s, they can at least, they want to watch them, uh, our bands play on YouTube. They can, you know, it's cool. I mean, that's, that's kind of a beautiful thing because like, I, I, I think like when, Nick and I were, like, basically going through, you know, high school, teenage times in the 90s. And, you know, punk and hardcore and metal, to some extent, was still doing records. And then, like, that's when the eBay boom came in. And it's just, like, because some of that stuff was only available on, like, vinyl. And it's like, I need this fucking 7-inch. And it's like, am I going to really spend that money? And, like, I think... I think all of us here have spent money on records. Like, man, I don't know. I don't know. And then it's like, now it's available easy. And it's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, right. The one thing we haven't really talked about, we talked about a little bit in the beginning, but kind of going full circle here is your writing. Because not only do you write lyrics for Broken Hope, you've actually written two novels and several short stories. Do you want to talk about how you became a professional writer? During the first decade of Broken Hope, when I was writing all those lyrics, I remember it was right around 1997 when our album loathing came out, that was a turning point for my writing. Um, I was really writing more and more short stories out, outside of writing lyrics and stuff. And I really started taking it seriously. And I decided I was going to get better at my craft and I was going to keep learning more about writing actual stories and eventually novels and uh, just, just going to work hard at it. So right around the time Broken Hope had done Grotesque Blessings, I had a bunch of short stories written by then. I started fancying the idea of writing uh, my first novel. But back then, writing a novel was like a whole new monster for me to tackle. It was not like writing a short story at all. It was a big learning process. And what's funny is, when I wrote that novel, the first one, I thought, oh, well, I wrote it. I'm done, right? I knew nothing of editing. You know, I didn't know shit about that. Like, what it really takes from dialogue, point of view, blah, blah, blah. All the, all the elements of being a novelist, I had zero clue on. And, you know, I started shopping it around thinking, oh, I'll get an agent and sell it. Man, I was so freaking naive, man. It's kind of like a band's first demo. That first novel was like my band's first demo. Like I had the mentality, our first demo was the greatest thing that anyone would ever hear, which it was definitely not, <laughs> you know? And the same with my first novel. I thought, oh, this is great, you know? And I eventually, thankfully, met the right people in my life who took me under their wing, like... Um, this veteran liter literary agent who actually took a look at my novel 
was like, hey, you really need to learn about editing and, and so much more about the craft. But I see something in you that I really like, and you, you have a lot of whatever motivation and ambition, and you don't think you know everything. So despite the fact I thought it was the best thing since sliced bread, I been in broken hope long enough to take rejection real well. <laughs> you know, I listened to this woman and she she said, I'm gonna hook you up with this editor who is a veteran editor. He actually works at a major publishing house. He's worked at three of them, in fact, and he's now doing freelance editing. I'll connect you with him. And if he decides to take you on, you'll have to pay him to edit your book and learn from him because he's going to teach you. It's going to what it's going to be like going to college for novel writing. This guy, I'll use this analogy. I'm Luke Skywalker and he's this guy's Yoda. That's exactly what it was. And the guy said, yeah, I'll take you on, blah, blah, blah. I paid him. You know, I, I, at the time I had a job, I didn't make a lot of money and it cost a lot of money to have this guy work with me. But you know what, Jim and Nick, it was like the best goddamn thing that ever happened to me because I really learned the tools necessary to become a much better novelist, a much better writer, period. So grateful that happened to me because from there, we edited that novel and I worked on it and I realized, yeah, it really wasn't that great. Time to go on to the next one. Before I went to the next one, I started writing more short stories, to, you know, to keep my keep my game on and, and, and better myself as a writer. And I started publishing short stories. And fast forward a couple more years, I sold my first short story uh, to St. Martin's Press, major publisher. And it went into an anthology and it was, that was fucking great for me. It was so great because my story was the first story in the collection. It was a major publisher and that, that book at the time when it came out sold like 60,000 copies. And it really put my name as a writer in, in, in the faces of so many people. And then I had, I had written my first novel, the Armageddon Chord, right around the same time I got that 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 uh, story published and that's when i got i got an agent and sold that book so from there i had the armageddon court i, I you know published more short fiction that i published the novel rabbit heart and rabbit heart was my most recent novel that novel's had a lot of traction man it's gotten wonderful reviews it's won like four book awards been nominated for others and i'm like i'm just really proud of it at the end of the day, the the place I'm at with writing, and by the way, I've got like two more, I've got two novels written and another, I actually wrote a memoir for, for this famous chef, kind of got out of my comfort zone. He asked me to write for him. So I've got a few more books that are in the pipeline coming out um, in the next year. But anyway, what I was going to say before that was uh, I write for myself, you know, I really fucking enjoy writing you know and it's like that's what it should be about not not trying to be on the new york times bestseller list or or win awards i love the accolades they're great but um i really write just for the sheer joy of it you know and um that's what anyone should do whether you're building birdhouses or you're doing hosting cinematic void you're doing it because you're passionate about it right and mm -hmm. that's how it is with writing 
I fucking, dude, I love writing so much. I write full time. I'm really lucky to be able to do that. And um, it's part of my journey, you know, since I was a kid, you know, as you know, book, books came before music and then writing and music intertwined and, and broken hope. But here I am outside of broken hope writing stories, you know, and I really enjoy it. It's just um, me having an overactive imagination. It's one way to get shit out, you know, out of my head. <laughs> and I mean, that's, amazing now you've also kind of like taken the writing to another level because i i think i just saw you announced a new publishing company do you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah actually i've got i've got two companies that have launched in the last year the first one really hasn't been announced and it's called aphotic media and that's a media company that i uh, created with a, a partner of mine who's actually in the film business and we do tv and film stuff so uh, the way the way that company goes is i'm actually writing and creating everything from either tv shows or films and documentaries so right now we got a tv series that we got is a real that's almost done being edited for um it's it's kind of like i hate the term i kind of hate the term reality series a reality show but it that's what it is and it's about a a famous chef it's not like hell's kitchen or anything where there's a lot of drama and people throwing shit and screaming it's more like real sobering and real on a visceral level of what it takes to run, run a, a real fine dining establishment that's that's the one that's the first project that we have going the second one is we got the rights to do the almond brothers story so i wrote i so I, i'm writing actually writing scripts now that's a whole new animal for me i fucking love it so we're i'm writing scripts and creating stuff now the almond brothers story that's like based on a book that came out that we got the rights to and it's a fascinating story the Bowman brothers had a 50-year career which again you know i don't do anything i'm not into and that Almond brothers story is so friggin crazy and unbelievable that it, it's beyond compelling so i got the first episode script written and in the treatment for like 10 episodes so that's that's also in the pipeline and then get this <laughs> i'm do i'm about a quarter to halfway into a documentary film about a famous porn star you may or may not know named peter north and i'm doing his documentary with his involvement exclusively and that's actually through a friend of mine my friend Corey soria who lives in la actually he's a he's a filmmaker He's also really close to Glenn Danzig. He's done like, I don't know, Glenn's last several videos and they're very tight. And uh, Corey was also really close to Peter North. So he came to me. We were talking about doing this horror movie thing together, Corey and me. And then one day he goes, hey, Peter, look, he's, he's almost retirement age. He's 65. He's not in the business. His life story is fucking really crazy, really compelling. 
Um, and you know, I've seen, I've, I've seen some porn documentaries and even some series about porn stars, like on Showtime and stuff. And I like, they, I just thought they were kind of like, kind of like some, some like memoirs I read, they really lacked a lot of substance or anything interesting. You know, I really am about the story and the journey. So the more I talked to Corey and the more I learned about Peter, I got instantly hooked. So it's been turn it's turning out really well. I mean, it's really like a humanizing story. It's really, it's really something. So anyway, and we have more projects coming down the line, but I, as you can see, like in the last year, when it comes to film, I got my toes and everything, TV, biopic series, and now a documentary. So that that's going great. So, and believe me, uh, I didn't want to have do any more like, shit outside of writing i thought okay i'll write novels and i'll do a photic media but then i got this guy who had this amazing line of books that i really believed in and when i say books these are photo books like 40 years of archives bro of like every fucking band every every punk hardcore thrash metal band that's that's ever been through a 40 years and the guy never did a book he's a professional photographer he's had pictures published in magazines you know we got together and he's like can you help me get a publishing deal i he's got enough material he could do fucking 40 books like it's just amazing so i talked to his publisher the publisher i knew he's an independent publisher and he did more he does more horror stuff I'm like, why don't you branch out, do this nonfiction line of, of books, though they're going to do incredibly well. This guy, I can bring him to you on a silver platter, make it work. And then th that guy goes, I'm really into that idea, but my partner won't go for it. He just wants to do extreme horror. And then why don't you, Jeremy, and I partner up and make a publishing company? I'm like, motherfucker, that's the last thing I need. But here we are. So, yeah. <laughs> The name of the company is called uh, Stygian Sky Media. It's really fucking great. We we announced it last week. We're doing different books, obviously. So we're doing a nonfiction. So the nonfiction line is photo books, memoir, whatever. You know, we like with anything, Jim and Nick. I I don't do anything. Uh, I'm not into right. So nonfiction. And then we're doing on the fiction side. I'm really into crime fiction, like the black lizard stuff kind of thing. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. I love that. Outside of horror, that's my that's my 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 type of fiction. I like stories that are really dark, fucked up, where the the main characters go through hell and there's not happy endings. You know, <laughs> that's kind of like that's kind of like me, man. It goes back to me being a horror kid and being fascinated by dark shit. I can't tell you why that is, but it's just me. So I wanted to do everything. If I was going to do this publishing company, obviously I'm bringing this line of photo books to the table, but I'm like, well, fuck it. We got a publishing house. I want to do what else I'm into. I'm into crime fiction, thriller. I am into horror too. We'll do horror stuff, but basically dark fiction. So those are the two lines. And I got a really great partner, Jared Barbie. 
He's the CEO of Dusthead Press, which is an extreme horror label uh, publisher. And they're do they're going gangbusters. They're really successful. And this uh, great gal, Sadie Hartman, she's our publicist and, and it handles a lot of other stuff. She has um her own empire. She she does um Nightworms, which is a horror book subscription that you can get. It's really marvelous. Uh, every month they send you like a number of, of, of horror novels and, and all these other goodies in a subscription package that comes to your house. And, and the books are <clears throat> carefully curated by her and her partner. So you're only getting like the best in horror and dark fiction. Really fucking cool. Real proud of her. She's very successful. And then she's also like this insane book reading machine. She reads hundreds and hundreds of books a year and then reviews all these books. So she's an asset to Stygian and Sky Media because I don't have time to read all that shit. Like manuscripts coming through the door or anything. <clears throat> so Sadie will read. Jared will read too. I'm probably one of the last guys in this partnership to do the reading, but I'm actively acquiring what I can. Just want to put out only the absolute best quality books, just like me putting out a Broken Hope album, right? Highest quality literature, or fiction, whatever, nonfiction that you can get from from the the binding to the paper to the cover art to the actual story top of the line so uh that's what we're all about it's really exciting so and to that end i don't know i i i told you i have a couple new books of my own that are done i have been shopping two books to literary agents and i'm getting to a point where if if I don't get an agent, you know, sign me up and try shopping any of my books, I'll put them out through this imprint, and I'm I'm gonna make that decision um, <clears throat> by the end of this month. It's really cool, man. I'm digging it. I never thought I never thought I'd be in the film game, and I never thought I'd be in the publishing game as a as a publisher, you know. But again, I I sound like a broken record when I use the word passion, but. That's what it's all about. I'm passionate about all these things. I'm passionate about discovering new authors, our new talent, and I'm passionate about creating and developing things in a new medium that's not in a bound book, but more visual, you know. So, um, hey, you know, it's something you and I share with Cinematic Void. I look at your Instagram all the time, and you post shit that just I, I just start nodding like, yeah. Yeah, he fucking gets it, man. <laughs> you know, it's great. So, I, I, you know, I'm doing all the shit I love, you know. And again, that's what life should be about for all of us, you know. Do what you want. Honest to God, do what makes you fucking happy in life. I mean, that's the only way to live life. I mean, if you ain't, if you ain't living like that, you ain't living. For a guy who likes reading books with no happy endings, I actually, in my real life, I... I like I like happy endings for everybody. So, just throwing it out there, Mister uh, Positive. <laughs> you mentioned you were getting into um, filmmaking and documentaries. Has anyone approached you about like turning your two novels into feature films? There's an agent in uh, Beverly Hills who 
last year was interested in the Armageddon chord, but so far it's just been talk. You know, who knows that that's something my partner and I at a, at a photic media discussed was um, the whole thing with a photic media started because my filmmaker buddy, Frankie had read the Armageddon chord. And as soon as he read my last novel, rabbit heart, he goes, dude, let's do something together. I love your writing. You know me, I'm a filmmaker. Let's create original content together. You fucking write scripts. You know, use that imagination of yours and, and let's and do something different. And again, uh, it all goes back to my love of, of film and using my imagination and going, yeah, you know, I'd like to tap into that world outside of writing books and, and, and creating stuff. So to that end, we're going to see how like these few projects we have in the pipeline do if they do well, maybe they'll open doors and then I can circle back and write, write, you know, like the, uh, the screenplays or something for, for my two books. I think a book like the Armageddon Court, especially would have like an epic appeal. It's just not a straight up horror, horror novel by any means. Actually, it's kind of like, Raiders of the Lost Ark meets the Da Vinci Code meets, you know, fucking Steve Vai in the movie Crossroads. It's like all that shit. You know, it's got Egypt. It's got Nazis. It's got fucking a, a, a guitar rock god and, you know, like all these biblical fucking things and unleashing hell on earth. I mean, it's like got all these insane facets. It's really over the top. But in this world we live in with these fucking crazy Marvel comic book movies and, and all these other blockbuster films that are, especially with CGI and shit. Now I'm like, like that, that could be something, you know, I don't know, maybe, but point is I'm definitely interested in writing a, a screenplay for that. And for rabbit heart, rabbit heart. I'm really, I love, I love that book. It's pretty dark. I was actually reluctant to release that book when I did because it it deals with the pandemic. I mean, this is before COVID, but the pandemic is all George Romero zombie world is upon us. And look, zombies have been so overdone. I was like, fuck that. I don't I don't know if people are really gonna embrace it. But you know what? The book did really well. And I did try to approach zombies in a, a unique way again a lot of it though is a lot of that book is really dark and bleak kind of like you know Cor if you took cormac mccarthy and and mashed him up with george romero that's kind of what i was going for like like the road meets day of the dead or something i'm really proud of that novel and i i'd like to see that made into a film i think that would be cool point is if no one else steps up then Jim, uh, maybe I'll do it. Awesome. Uh, I guess this is the last question before we take a little break here, but, um, now that 2021 starting to open up and we can start doing things again, what's the thing you're looking forward to the most being able to do with, with the whole world kind of being open again, right off the bat. Um, well, I look forward to not wearing a mask 
right before I did this interview, I went, I went out to dinner with my wife and I was telling her like, I wear, I wear glasses. I'm not wearing them now, but like my glasses always fog up and I got to pull my mask down. And then, um, sometimes like, I don't feel like I'm, uh, breathing all that well or something. I don't know. Maybe it's because of allergies right now, but I'm like, I'm like, I ditching the mask is going to be wonderful. Like really ditch mask. Um, <clears throat> I'm all for the masks. You know, I understand that, you know, you want to prevent yourself and others from getting sick. I'm fully vaccinated now too. So that's for me personally, that was important, but outside of that gym, man, I'd like to just get back to traveling, like being able to hop on a plane, um, with, you know, and not have to be socially distanced from everyone and just traveling normally. There's people in my family I haven't been able to see for two years because of the pandemic, <clears throat> just for health reasons and, and even logistics, you know, so, uh, traveling, definitely seeing loved ones again, you know, so those are the things I want to do first for sure. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we return, Jeremy will be with us as we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to on the Cinematic Void podcast. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemanus Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Some say the world will end by fire. Others say it will end by ice. Now, somewhere in the Antarctic, the question is being settled forever. John Carpenter's The Thing. Coming this summer from Universal Pictures. Welcome back. It's now time for... On the Cinematic Void podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to. And since Jeremy is the guest today, he gets to go first. So, Jeremy, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? Okay, reading-wise, um, I'm reading a book by an author, uh, Steve, Stephen Graham Jones. And it's, um, it's a dark fiction novel called The Only Good Indians. Now, <clears throat> I'm only halfway through it. The gist I got are there's these hunters who kind of poached uh, some elk on uh, some Indian territory, if I'm not mistaken. The spirit of one of the elks, a female elk, comes back to fuck up the lives of these guys. It's pretty good so far. All the reviews I've seen for the book have been great, but so far I'm really enjoying that. Watch, tell you what I'm watching right now. I've been watching a Showtime series called City on a Hill. It stars Kevin Bacon. It takes place in 
back in Boston, like in the 1990s. It's kind of got a vibe like The Wire. If any of you guys have watched The Wire or, you know, viewers of Cinematic White podcast. Nick and I are from the Baltimore area, so we very familiar with The Wire. Oh, very good. Very good. Okay. But Maryland Death Fest? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. I was going to say, because anytime like someone, like, oh, you're from Baltimore, is it really like The Wire? And I heard that like the first like five years when I moved here. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. So, well, City and the Hill, what I like about it is because I like, I like The Wire. And again, guys, it's like my love of crime, I guess. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with it when it's done right. City on a Hill is done pretty good. Kevin Bacon is such a fucked up and corrupt uh, FBI guy. I mean, he, you know, he does blow, he drinks, he, he's, you know, fucking around on his wife. It's not quite Harvey Keitel in Bad Lieutenant, but for TV, it's it, his character is so fucked up. It's it's close. So it's got it's it's great. And I'm on season two, episode four, and uh, I'm in, I'm really enjoying that. I also just started watching another show. I might as well mention it because I'm watching it at the same time, and it's an HBO series, Mayor of East Town with uh kate winslet she's a detective and uh it's in some small town and a girl gets murdered trying to figure it out but it's dark well done oh guy pierce is in it i love guy pierce uh so i've been watching that's what i'm watching right now what i want to watch if i can don't mind me mentioning is i got to figure out i don't know if you guys watch discovery plus i got I I got that. Yeah, I got to get it because they got this Ed Gein thing on there or something. So um, serial killers are another thing that I'm fascinated with uh, and read about. So and I told you guys, I kind of grew up in Ed Gein country for real, like growing up. So Ed Gein's like, I would say I'm laughing because it sounds funny because I think it's fucked up to say my favorite serial killer is, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but there's, I'll just say there's serial killers that I'm so fascinated with because I'm like, what was going on upstairs to make them do what they did? But it's like Ed Gein, Albert Fish and Jeffrey Dahmer for me are three that just, if I was a psychiatrist, I'd be fascinated with them. So anyway, I want to watch this Ed Dean thing that's on Discovery Plus. Then the other thing I've been jamming on, this is totally out of nowhere. It just hit me. I have satellite radio in my car. I have very eclectic tastes. Very eclectic. I listen to whatever hits me right. I don't give a fuck. I, I love, you know. I'm not that teenager who's like, kill the posers and everything sucks, especially country music, blah, blah, blah. I I really listen to everything. If it hits me right, it's all that matters. So I actually like smooth jazz. So I listen to watercolors on satellite radio. And the song came on by a band called The Jazz Holdouts, and their album is called Summer Nights. And... I heard this tune, man, and I was like, what the hell is that? Every time like, I'm in my car and something comes on that I'm like, holy shit, that sounds great. I 
safely try and take a picture of it with my phone while I'm in my car so I don't forget. So I've been jamming on Jazz Holdout summer nights for like the last week, like nonstop. I don't know. It just puts me in a mood, you know, so that that's where I'm at. Speaking of different types of music, I'll just throw this out there because <laughs> it reminds me of my buddy, Charlie Benante from the band Anthrax. Um, Charlie's a good friend of mine together a couple weeks ago, and we like listening to the same shit that's not metal, right? So he was DJing. So like he was spinning like Boston and Phil Collins and the BGs, <laughs> we're having the best time. So I, again, I, I like, I like a lot of music that people might be surprised to hear me talk about. But again, it's all about what hits me. But right now, I'm on jazz holdouts and a like a smooth jazz kick. That's what's happening here in Wagner World right now. I mean, you gotta be able to do it all if you're gonna live life in smooth jazz. So yep, you gotta be able to get into that that's right bro that's right puts me in the right mood you know so nick what have you been reading watching and or listening to all right let's see uh i've i'm still making my way through the robert anton wilson cosmic trigger 2 uh audiobook as i'm driving around town for work and doing other things uh, but not really sitting around reading currently. Listening-wise, uh, the Numero Group just did another one of their karate reissues, the In Place of Real Insight, um, which is, again, just like jazzy 90s indie rock, just sparse and sad and weird. Um, but yeah, love that band. Um, also been listening to Rome Streets, Death and the Magician, still. I'm just stuck on that record. Uh, nothing, nothing new otherwise. Um, and then another thing I'm kind of cheating here cause I haven't actually been listening to this, but I want to just show it off. I just got a Serbian film soundtrack LP. Now the, the thing that's even weirder about this is I got this from some guy on Instagram who made lathe cut versions. So there's literally like less than 10 of these in existence. Uh, so yeah, I got that. I haven't actually listened to it, but it's, it's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> That's awesome. And then, uh, and then a little of the new Cannibal Corpse, Violence Unimagined. Um, it's actually really fucking good. You know, it's Cannibal Corpse. It's good. Got the album. I, I haven't listened to the whole thing. It's funny. I, I also bought that for my that film guy. I told you, Corey. I bought that for him as a gift. He's fucking phenomenal. He loves it. He says it's great. Hell yeah. Um, watching wise, I just uh, recently received in the mail. I ordered this in like January or something, but. Uh, Indicator UK just did a new version of uh, Gaspar Noe's uh, Irreversible. It comes with an extra version of the film that's the straight cut, so it plays actually in you know chronological or or as as Gaspar says clockwise. And it and it makes it a completely different film, and you know it it starts out happy and ends fucked up, and it just makes you feel a completely different type of way. Um, so if if you have the stomach to see Irreversible. Uh, and then I also, because of that, I went on to watch I Stand Alone this week, which is Gaspar's first film. And then I also just watched Enter the Void for the first time. And uh, both of those fucking kicked my ass. Um, <laughs> the uh, the car crashes, the car crash scenes in Enter the Void, 
uh like really fucking hit me like for some reason like those the car crash man so fucked up right and then it happens a couple times in the film when i'm like not expecting it and it's just gnarly right and it like made me want to call my sister straight up like effective fucking film uh but uh so then that made me uh i have had a criterion copy of crash that i haven't watched yet i haven't watched since the 90s when it came out so i just watched crash uh and then i also watched dirtotus king i don't know if that's how you pronounce it the death king uh but by the guy that did necromantic and necromantic 2 your book right uh and then lastly uh i just watched gutter balls by ryan nicholson uh another unearthed films unearthed also did uh serbian film recently uh gutter balls Ryan Nicholson. Ryan Ryan was a special effects guy on uh, X Files, actually, but he's made a bunch of just totally fucked up films. And uh, the, there's a there's a version, the Pintastic version. Uh, actually, there's a a an awful gang rape scene in this movie. And unlike Irreversible, there's just like no redeeming. Like it's just this movie's fucked up. Uh, and this pintastic version it actually shows penetration like it's just it's like an extra two minutes of, in the movie of just like when bad shit happens it actually shows like the dick going in oh uh, shit yeah so if you're into just like seeing the worst shit ever i highly recommend gutter balls and that's about it for me you've been going down this path haven't you i just i just want to i want to just break my fucking brain in two just show me the worst shit i'm all for it man <laughs> I was gonna say, if you like unearthed films and their fucked up things they've been putting out, they're they've put out some of um, Hong Kong's notorious Category Three movies. They put out um, Untold Story, aka Bun Man, with Anthony Wong, which is one of the great Hong Kong like nasty like serial killer movies. They're also getting ready to do Doctor Lamb, which I don't know if you ever seen Doctor Lamb, Jeremy, but it's like not that one. Yeah, it's Doctor Lamb is probably the the peak category three hong kong movie with simon yam and like okay co-directed by danny lee who was like the one of the stars of the killer besides chow yun fat and um yeah billy, billy tang who made had a hand in most of the most notorious of like category three stuff so wow so nick cool and jeremy i'm recommending you some if you want to keep going down this path category three hong kong is where it's at <laughs> cool <All right. laughs> Love it. Uh, so for me and read, watch, listen, still reading the Giallo Canvas by Alexandra Heller Heller Nicholas. It's a basically it's a book that's like kind of takes like looks at the artistic aspects of Giallo films and like you know there's a lot of p- people that are characters that are painters or have art collections and stuff like that. It's really interesting, and because of that, my watch has been skewed more giallo-esque i would say i watched um should say rewatch seven deaths in a cat's eye which is kind of closer to gothic horror with giallo elements i also watched probably the sleaziest giallo ever made called giallo in venice has the mom from burial ground in it it is pretty trashy that's about the nicest i can say from it (laughs) and then the last thing i watched was a late 80s paul nashy movie that he stars and directed called how the devil also has caroline carolyn monroe in it as well um basically nashy kind of plays a version of himself that's a retired actor and then he starts like 
having fantasies or daydreams of all these different characters play. So he plays his famous Wolfman. He's also Frankenstein's monster, fan of the opera, hunchback of Notre Dame, that kind of stuff. Again, nice, nice and sleazy Spanish horror there. Um, listen, I couldn't think of anything I've been really listening to. I did listen to some from Jeremy's neck of the woods or where he was born. At least that's the new Bongzilla record. Weed Sconson. I don't know if you can really ever actively guess the theme of any Bongzilla record, but guess what? It's about weed. <laughs> so, some nice stoner jams, but you know, in Wisconsin, there's a there, there's a uh, recreation area <clears throat> just over the Illinois state line in southern Wisconsin. It's called Bong Recreation Area. <laughs> Fitting and appropriate. It's a real place. I'm not kidding. Yeah. You see the big signs I've seen in my whole life. Two miles away, Bong Recreation Area. Well, I mean, it's good a- it's good advertising. Although I'm not sure what would happen if you pulled out a bong there, but <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> uh one thing that I wanted to mention, even though we're kind of backtracking when you kept talking about Ed Gein, it's like Ed Gein probably has the biggest cinematic like horror franchise out of any serial killer, because you gotta think psycho. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Three on a Meat Hook, countless others. So it's, yeah. Deranged. Yeah, Deranged. Oh, I can't believe I forgot Deranged. That's a good. Alan Ormsby, I think, was, mm. uh, yeah, that was one of his movies, yeah. Yeah, it's actually, it's a damn good one. I feel bad. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> yeah, don't I, worry. <laughs> I, I know I was forgetting one of them. I was like, which one am I forgetting? But, like, I don't know. It's, I always think about that. It's like, there's been, out of all the serial killers, even more so than Jack the Ripper, I think Ed Gein's got the most movies or most inspired by. Yeah, he inspired a lot, man. There's a band called Ed Gein. There's Ed Gein's car. <laughs> Eric, Eric Powell, the that cartoonist of the for the Goon. You know that that series, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's got um he's got a brand new, brand spanking new Ed Gein uh, based comic that that's coming out cool yeah ed gein probably never thought he'd be this relevant in 2021 <laughs> no <laughs> no probably not no <laughs> jeremy i want to thank you for joining us tonight it's been a real pleasure to kind of pick your brain and everything you talk about it definitely carries over that you definitely only do things that you love so it's been a pleasure yeah likewise jim and and nick uh thank you both for for the opportunity to hang out with you both and uh talk about all these things we all love and um no bullshit man cinematic void your your ig page your movie screenings everything you do is absolutely killer i fucking love it and um it's a real honor to be on your podcast man i i really i really do uh appreciate love what you do so thank you very much thank you jeremy it means a lot to hear that from you coming up on the cinematic void podcast since nick is going down his dark route it's only fitting that our next episode is going to be about snuff or movies that deal with snuff films later on we'll have another episode coming up that's going to be giallo adjacent which are movies that aren't italian made but 
do share similarities to the beloved Italian thrillers. And coming up on the next Cinemadness movie will be May 28th, presented by our friends at Vinegar Syndrome. It goes live at 8.30 p.m. Pacific over at www.cinematicvoid.com slash midnight. So mark your calendars, make sure you check that out. And until next time, see you in the void. void.